end that our souls have been ransomed. We have been purchased with a price. We are blood-bought. We are not our own. We are men and women who have been loved from all eternity. And because we have, the Father loved so much that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would place their whole hope of life after death in that God-designed, God-provided Savior, that we would not perish, but indeed we would have everlasting life. And for those, this great Savior has spilled his blood. We are a people who are ransomed, which means there was a ransom price. That price offered up by Christ and him alone. It is not because we're good. It is not because we're meritorious. It is not because we're smarter or cuter or cleaner or better. We are simply people who have been ransomed, bought, paid for, holy, by Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And so, Father, we gather uh, on a weekly basis to celebrate that redemption. Father, it's not the only times that we celebrate. Those of us who have come to understand the great depths from which we have been taken, we're a people who celebrate often. We're a people who have been convinced that had it not been for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus, number one, life wouldn't make any sense. And number two, we would be over, overwrought with anxiety at the grave. And I pray, O oh God, that more and more we might come to appreciate and adore the Savior we want to be people whose highest loyalty in life is Jesus Christ. And Father, might our worship times be pleasing to you. Might they be times in which the people of God are stimulated to love and good deeds, but also might they be times where heaven rejoices as they watch the people of God express matters of love and, and adoration for our God. Our Father, we want uh, more than anything to live lives pleasing unto you, and we know that we haven't. We didn't this past week. We all know that there are things that were done even in the last seven days that did not please you and perhaps brought even shame to the gospel. Forgive us, Father. We, uh, we are a people who understand that... Forgiveness is available to us, and we come, as do prodigals from centuries past, we come to bury our heads in the bosom of the gracious Father. That is our delight. Father, it is with excitement that we approach the coming days. We thank you for giving us a real liberty in Christ Jesus, a, a, a wonderful love of holy living, we've discovered that it's in holy living where life makes the most sense. 
And Father, as a result of learning that, we want to be used of you to reach the people all around us that are wondering what life is about. Where is it supposed to head? How is it supposed to function? Father, it would be our privilege to be used to tell them that. So give us those open doors of ministry and service as individuals and as a church. Our desire is to reach this community as it is also to permeate the world with the great gospel of Jesus Christ. And to that end, we give, and that's the only reason we give, not to advance any other cause, save the cause of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, oh, that endures forever. This uh, story about Peter, which is, as I said, familiar to you, contains some lessons that, in my opinion, are absolutely essential to one's spiritual well-being. In terms of spiritual life, spiritual growth, spiritual walk, the lessons that are contained in this story are ones that we need to hear over and over and over again until they're embedded deeply inside our souls, till the, till the very lesson is imprinted in the forefront of our spiritual thinking. They are, they are lessons that concern a, a, a fact of human, or human experience. They concern failure. There are no supermen among us. I hope I'm not the first one to tell you that. All of us have our tales of woe to tell. To tell. We... Um, we have one piece, if not others, but we certainly have one piece of commonality between us, and that is that we've all experienced failure. It's one of the things that binds us man to man, that we've all tasted failure. And though some of us find it easier to talk about in public than others, we've all failed. But the story about Peter confronts us with a particular brand of failure. Um, this is uh, not, a, not a story about um, the kind of failure that, that maybe uh, John McCain and um, Bill Bradley could tell us about. This is not a story about how a business went belly up. Um, and, and very frankly, guys, I could plug in lots of different little stories right here about uh, how many times it took Abraham Lincoln to finally be elected as president, or I can tell you stories about how the Gone with the Wind was rejected by so many publishing houses before uh, it finally got published and became the, the epic that it is. We can, we can talk all about those stories, but very frankly, this is not a story about that. This is a story, this story about Peter deals with a specific kind of failure, spiritual failure. We've got those two, don't we? We may have failed in business, but this story isn't about business or professional failure. It's not about marital failure. It's about a brand of failure that wrenches our souls, ladies and gentlemen. This is a story about a Christian Christian that 
blew it. Do you try to quit early on Friday afternoons? I do too. I don't make it much, but I try. This Friday afternoon, my, um, my phone rang, it was my wife, and uh, you never say no to your wife. That's a good principle, guys, don't forget that one. And even when people are in my office, I mean, you know, normally they, they hold my phone calls if I've got an appointment, but not with my wife. You never say no to your wife. I picked up the phone and it was my wife and she said, I, I, uh, we have just received the most disturbing letter. I, I just read the most disturbing letter that I've ever read in my entire life. Well, that's a, a nice thing to hear across the phone. Which kid is it that's in trouble? <laughs> um, I mean, what kind of disaster has occurred to the young family? She said, you want me to read it to you? I said, oh, no, I'll wait till, the, till, till tonight. Of course, read the thing, would you? <laughs> and um, she began to read it. She's right. Most disturbing letter. Um, I can't tell you, we don't have time for me to tell you. I, in fact, I meant to bring it with me. Three pages. Three pages of a lady describing something that took place almost a year ago, July the 30th. It seems that a friend of mine who had been in the ministry for 30 years, 30 years, committed suicide. shot himself on the 30th and died on the 31st. And I hadn't heard about it. And then, of course, the rest of the story is just filled, dripping with vituperation. You don't know what that means. That means she's angry. She's angry at him. She's angry at God. She's angry at everybody. A Christian blew it. Failed. Big time. Gang, this is a story for the family. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, boy, we're glad you're here. We're, um, we want to be a place where you feel that you are as warmed and as welcome, and you are. Very frankly, I want you to know something. We exist for you. We exist to point you to the same Savior that we found various numbers of years ago. We'd love for you to meet our Savior. We'd love to tell you more and more about him. But this morning, the story is really for the family. It's for the people of God. And so, my dear friends, listen up. This one's for us. I've broken my thoughts or the story or the lessons, however you want to say it, I've broken it up into two halves. That's just the way I've arranged my thoughts. I'm sure you could arrange it in a different way, but I've arranged my thoughts in, under two headings. And there's various little secondary and even tertiary lessons to be learned in, in, in this, throughout this whole thing. But, uh, and I'll try to draw those to your attention. But for sake of just presentation, I've broken it up into two halves. And here's half number one. Um, it is the certain how-to of failure. That is, do you want to fail? Well, listen up, ladies and gentlemen. I can tell you how. I've got a foolproof, guaranteed method. If it's failure you want, I can tell you how to do it. This is a prescription for failure. You want to learn from the, from the pros? 
Well, I can probably give you a, a few point, pointers myself. But we've got even a better pro. Peter, you want to learn how to fail? Then watch Peter. I want to show you that Peter made three mistakes, or Peter's downfall is hinged on three blunders, or errors, or defects, or breaches, or whatever you want to call it. But watch Peter as he sets himself up for unbelievable wipeout. Failure number one, or mistake number one, it is a exaggerated view of himself. Look at verses 29 and 31. Um, Peter said, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And then Jesus says something, and he says, but he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you. Those are words, ladies and gentlemen, that come out of a mouth of a man who, speak, who thinks way too highly of himself. He thinks that he has arrived at a certain plateau of spiritual maturity, and he isn't there, but he thinks he is. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, this whole little dialogue in here is almost comical. Do you see what he's doing in verses uh, 27 through 31? He's arguing with Jesus. Jesus says, well, you know, um, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says uh, that, uh, you know, the sheep is, the, 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 the shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep are going to scatter. And Peter says, now, Jesus, wait just a second. <laughs> You perhaps don't understand that text well enough. Let me, let me give you my insight to the text. And uh, he says, not me. <laughs> no, not, no, not I. And then Jesus says, um, I, I, assuredly, Peter, I'm here to tell you, Peter, before the cock crows twice, the rooster crows twice, good old King James language, before the rooster crows, crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. What? Jesus, you, you, you seem to be mistaken. You're a tad confused. Ah, uh, I know what you're saying, Jesus, and, and that may be true of a lot of creeps, but not me. Do you know how all of that happens, ladies and gentlemen? It takes place because here's a man who thinks way too highly of himself. He thinks that he is, he is at a certain degree of, of spiritual maturity, And he ain't. Gang, do you see how disastrous to the soul a high view of yourself can be? It will even convince you that you have a right to argue with Jesus. It will furthermore convince you that you know more than Jesus. How about that? We do it all the time. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. I know you said that, but, you know, <laughs> that doesn't apply to me. They might apply to others, but it doesn't apply to me. Oh, I know, Jesus, that you say that, that, you're to, that we're to all flee from youthful lusts. But, Jesus, you don't understand. You don't understand the, the plateau to which I have arrived. Well, of course I can, I can take this smutty little novel. Why, my soul would never be harmed by exposing myself to such a thing. 
participate in in godly worldliness, oh, godless worldlessness? Oh, wouldn't bother me, Jesus. Now, it may bother them. You understand, because they have not arrived at the plateau of spiritual health to which I have arrived. Oh, yes, Jesus, I understand what you're saying. And it'll, it has great application, widespread application to many. Just not me. And you get yourself in that place, ladies and gentlemen, because you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Listen, brothers and sisters. Here's lesson number one. The things that we least anticipate are often the very nature of our failure. We often call the farthest from us the sins which in reality are the closest to us. And you know, it's got to be that way. It, it has to be like that. Because the Bible says that sin deceives. And so we think it's way, way far from us when in fact it's real close. Um, I told you a story years ago uh, that was uh, Malcolm Muggeridge told. And um, Malcolm Muggeridge was a uh, really a he was a newspaper man in London for years, but had a TV show and all this business, and he was uh, quite well thought of and, and just a brilliant man. But uh, Malcolm Muggeridge tells a story about the first time that he was really convinced that he was a sinner. And this is the, this is the story he told, or the, the illustration that he uses. He said, you know, I, I love my family. I have three children and, and a wife that I adore. And um, nothing is more important to me than my family and family life. And, and then he went away on a business trip, to, and I think it was to India. And while in India, something happened, which was fascinating. But uh, what happened in India, he found himself on the brink of getting involved in an adulterous affair on this business trip. And it struck him. If I can sin against those people who are the most important people in the world to me, then what wouldn't I do? <laughs> you know, ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing more important to Jimmy Young than his wife and his children. Next to Jesus Christ, there is nothing more valuable to me. You know what? I could sin against them. Peter apparently didn't realize that. And some of you don't. Some of you think that your souls are fatter than they are. You think that your, your walk with Christ is healthier than it is. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, you are set up for failure. The second thing that that we find, I didn't read this, but right after verse 31, you see the story of the Garden of Gethsemane and where Jesus says, I'm going to go over here and pray, and you three guys, could you uh, watch and pray? And what does Peter do? He sleeps. 
Um, that is the second step, the second mistake, the second defect was that instead of watching and praying, he slept. <laughs> instead of maintaining some kind of vigilance over his soul, he slept. And so when the crisis arose, the soldiers and everybody comes, and Peter is awakened from his very wonderful nap, the first thing that he does is he grabs his sword. He substitutes zeal for spirituality. And he begins to wield a sword. You know, gang, we neglect our souls. And then a crisis arises, let's say, uh, with the kids. And we respond, and our response is, oh, so regrettable, but predictable, because we have failed to watch and pray. You know, the aftermath of Peter's failure, uh, that is, of watching and praying, it's kind of funny, really. He whips out his sword, and he begins to whip around there with the sword, and as a swordsman, he makes a wonderful fisherman. He only got the ear. He accomplished absolutely nothing. It, it, it's somewhat similar to the story. Remember the story of the transfiguration when they're up, uh, and Jesus is transfigured, and he's sleeping again, and he gets awakened by all that's going on, and he blurts out some words. Well, here he blurts out with a sword. But in both cases, it was due to a failure to maintain vigilance over his soul. Listen, my brother and sister in Christ. Neglect of your soul will ultimately show up. You cannot take the summer off. You cannot take the weekend off. You cannot take tomorrow morning off. Because, ladies and gentlemen, our flesh is too weak and our enemy is too cunning. The time to watch and pray is before the tests arrive. I assure you, my dear friend, a famished soul is no match for a crisis, any crisis. We prepare for the inevitable crises that will come into all of our lives by keeping watch over our souls. The third piece of prescription of failure is mentioned in verse 54. And um, you may, uh, well, it's, but Peter followed him at a distance. And, and I think I'm, I'm safe in saying that the reason that that was included in there is, is to be used as a, a symbol of spiritual distance. You've seen the little plaque that people buy and they put it in their homes. It's in all kinds of Bible bookstores. A little plaque that says, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? It's pretty trite, but it's pretty true. You feel a distance between you and the Heavenly Father? Well, guess who moved? It wasn't him. <laughs> Gang, um, if you're determined 
to walk on the wild side. If you're, if you're determined to play fast and loose, then book it. Failure's on its way. You do know what it is, don't you, that puts distance between you and Jesus? Sin. Gang, here is a recipe for spiritual failure. An inflated view of your spiritual accomplishment. A neglect of your soul. And putting distance between you and the Savior by sin. You want to fail? There's how. Fail safe or fail proof. It'll, it'll bring it on every time. Now, I've got to hurry, but the other half of my comments are really organized under something else. It has to do, again, hopefully for the benefit and the edification and comfort of the people of God. When you fail, and you will notice I used when and not if. But, but this portion of my comments really gets imported from a part of the story that Mark does not include. I'm importing this from Luke's telling of the story, and you know the text. That's why I felt comfortable in, in, in using it. You know, you know what Luke had to say? Uh, he includes this statement by Jesus in verse 31 of chapter 22, if you'd like to look at it. But in this statement Jesus makes, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you turn, encourage your brothers. Well, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, um, failure being so inevitable, and you know, there's something really strangely almost comforting about the word inevitable. But, but it, it may be inevitable, but I hope you don't understand its inevitability as something that is encouraging you. Like, like we say, um, um, well, since sin is inevitable, I might as well go ahead and enjoy this. Surely Christians don't think like that, do we? You know, gang, I, I'm convinced if I could interview Peter, even though he was restored later, I, I'm convinced if, if I could interview Peter, he would say, please don't make the mistakes that I made. Please don't do that, even though he was restored. I, I think he would tell us, don't make the mistakes that I made. Well, back to those words of Luke 22. Luke 22, 31, ladies and gentlemen, allows us on the inside of two mysteries that occur in heaven. And, and I, I hope you'll see them. First of all, this is the night, of course, when the conflict between Christ and Satan was at its zenith. Do you remember the, the Genesis 3 passage? Way back in Genesis 3, when, when, when Adam and Eve have fallen and, and God shows up to distribute um, uh, assignments, and he, um, he says this. He says, the seed of the woman will crush your head, but the seed of the serpent will bruise his heel. Well, that bruising of the heel is taking place in spades to, on this night, ladies and gentlemen. The, the, the conflict between Satan and Christ is at its zenith. But, but the interesting part is that Satan's fury is not only felt by Christ, it is also felt by Peter and others, I'm sure. 
I don't, I'm not sure you're in a grace group. If you're not, um, boy, could I, would I, let me encourage you to get in one of those things. But in our grace group, we're studying Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's great classic. And in Pilgrim's Progress, there's a certain section in there, a chapter, and the title of the chapter is Apollyon. And Apollyon is just another name for Satan. And in that section, that chapter, there's a, there's a statement, there's a sentence in there, ladies and gentlemen, that I hope you know is true. Coming out of the mouth of Apollyon is this statement. He's speaking to Pilgrim, and he says to Pilgrim, I hate him, speaking of the Prince, Christ, I hate him, I hate his words, and I hate his people. I hate him, I hate his words, and I hate his people. Gang, that would mean you. But the comfort is that to get to Peter, Satan has to first ask for permission. Just like Job. Let me, let me, let me say that again, or, or quote the verse again. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. To get to, to get to Peter, ladies and gentlemen, Satan has first got to gain permission from my heavenly Father. So, you must understand that this one who hates the prince, his words, and his people, his power is limited. But as I, as I meditated on this, this week, I, I kind of a scary thought ran through my soul. And I... And I paused and said, Lord, please don't let him sift me. I mean, Father, if he asks, will you please say no? Don't let him sift me. Because, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm not so sure my soul would do me any better than Peter's. Satan's power is limited. And, ladies and gentlemen, back to that text. Satan, or Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. That is, ladies and gentlemen, that, that his power is limited. And even while he is inflicting that power, the Son of Man is engaged, is watching over his people in the midst of that terrible sifting. We Christians treasure that idea that the Son of Man is indeed at this moment interceding for his sons and his daughters. Christ um, prays for Peter, and the Father watches as Satan does his thing. And then the text says, and when you turn, again, not if, but when you turn, and how can Jesus be so sure that he will turn? Well, because Jesus prayed for him. Um, and that's enough to get us turned back around. And that's, that, I hope, encourages your soul, too. Two quick things. Let me wrap this up. There are two things that I, that I want you to remember, or more than two. But first of all, on this same night, there was another very notorious failure on the part of Judas. What is the difference between Peter's failure 
and Judas's failure? Well, I guess most obviously, the Son of Man did pray for Peter, and we're never told that he prayed for Judas. The other thing that I think we could say is that in Peter, we can find faith, and apparently we couldn't find it in Judas. But the thing that I want you to know is, Simon, or, or Peter and Judas represent the difference between repentance and remorse. You see, repentance is not concerned about the consequences. The, repentance is never saying, oh, I did do this, but. Repentance is not trying to shift the responsibility. Peter's concern is for the fact that I have wounded the one that I love. Remorse, on the other hand, remorse is concerned or, or dislikes very much the consequences of the sin. I was in a phone conversation on Friday, maybe it was Thursday, with a person who has really blown it. Blown it. And, um, and I wanted to tell her what I was going to say this Sunday, this, this Sunday morning, and I'm, I'm not quite finished, but I'm almost there. I wanted to tell her. But she kept telling me, yeah, yeah, I did do this, but you ought to see what he did. And she kept on and on and on trying to, yeah, I did do that. But, just like Judas. Gang, there are some rich comforts of this story for our souls as the people of God. But the comforts are not available to those who do not repent. Here's the happy ending, and I'm finished. Knowing everything that he knows about Peter, Jesus earlier changes his name. Remember, his name is Simon. But much earlier, knowing everything that he knows about Peter, Jesus changes his name to Petros, Rock, so that you and I would never despair. Do you get that? You know what, ladies and gentlemen, he knows a lot about you too. He knows a whole lot about you and I. And he calls us sons and daughters. If I could state it a little bit differently, and I hope this will bring rich comfort to your soul. Listen, not even conscious willful sin means that you are not real. Not even conscious willful sin means that you're not a real son or daughter. I'll leave you with this. Here's another uh, occasion where you get the, you see the vast difference between religion and Christianity. When I use the term religion, I'm talking about that man-made stuff out there, you know, uh, the, the, the way the, the masses understood, understand religion to be. But in religion, ladies and gentlemen, failure has a whole lot different significance than it does for us. Because you see, in, in religion, performance is the heart and soul of the thing. And if you perform poorly, then, oh my, you're in big trouble. But for those of us who understand the gospel, 
The gospel says we are sons and daughters, not because we performed well, but because Jesus performed well. And to those of us who know him, he has some comfort and lessons, even in the midst of our spiritual failure. Our Father, we do want to hear those words of restoration and forgiveness and because we know we're all in need of them and we we look at a man like Peter who who did things that that we find our own selves doing and it it scares the daylights out of us but father in the midst of remembering our failure of the past week remind us Remind us that you knew that too and that it too was covered with the blood of Jesus. That that too was buried in the ocean depths and that you no longer call us failures. You call us sons and daughters. And you do, O oh God, not because we've been good, but because Jesus is our big brother. It is to him that we look for nourishment of our souls. It is to him that we look for victory. It is to him that we look for forgiveness. It is to him that we look for life after death. We make our prayer this morning. In no other name than that one, Jesus.